Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Berislav Marusic, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. His book, On the Temporality of Emotions, is just out from Oxford University Press. When someone close to us dies, intense grief is an expected and reasonable response. But while the reason for our grief, the loss of the person who is the object of our grief, doesn't change, our grief itself does diminish. This diminishment is also expected, but how can it be reasonable if the reason for the grief hasn't changed at all? In his new book, Marusic articulates this puzzle of accommodation as a general feature of our, of our mental lives, and he considers a number of different attempts to resolve it. He defends the idea in the end that the puzzle can't be satisfactorily dissolved While the diminishment is reasonable, it is so in a way that we can never fully grasp. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Beroslav Marusic. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book on the temporality of emotions. Um, uh, Before we get to the, the actual topic of the book, which is, you know, one's kind of it's a it's a, a long discussion of you know how it is that we accommodate to various very strong emotionally powerful emotions like grief and anger um uh and and whether and, and why that is it is right to do so um given that the reasons for the, for the for the emotions in the first place don't seem to change but anyway um before we get to that uh, what, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, you're, um, you're at the university of Edinburgh now. Um, what was your, how did you get into philosophy and how did you come to write this book? I suppose I, I was always kind of a philosopher. I was always puzzled by what's going on and, um, what, what, how we got here. Um, I remember as a kid, I had this theory. I was a little kid. I was about five. I had this theory that, that everything was made of sand and then mayonnaise was the counterexample. Um, and I, I was exercised by that. Uh, so that's the kind of kid I was. Um, and then I um, really kind of wanted to do philosophy all along. Um, what, what I found difficult is to realize that philosophy is all I need. I, I thought I needed to do philosophy and something else. So when I when I went to university, I studied philosophy and first philosophy and physics, and then philosophy and literature. But really, I, I was interested in the philosophy bits. Maybe I should also say that philosophy is a bit of a family business. Um, so my uh, grandmother, from my mother's side, uh, was a philosopher in Croatia. Uh, her reputation, I think, deserved is that she introduced analytic philosophy into Croatia, and many analytic philosophers in Croatia have sort of grown up with her either by studying with her or receiving mentoring from her. And then my, my sister is also a philosopher. She's uh, in, at Humboldt University in Berlin, works on um, uh, philosophy of psychiatry. My brother studied philosophy. Um, and I suppose my dad, he will probably think it's a compliment if I say he's a bit of a philosopher himself. He didn't officially study it, but he has, uh, he has a lot of views. Uh, and I was sort of surprised to find that um, after I was writing my book on the emotions, which we'll talk about and arguing that 
Love is Endless, I, I saw, he too says that in his book. Um, uh, probably we both get it through a Catholic background and St. Paul, but, um, you know, the, these ideas kind of are around. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Um, I don't. I don't know if I know of any other philosopher with with so many other philosophers embedded in the in the philosophical world. Um, at least not at one time. Um, so yeah. So you mentioned well, endless love that that comes at the end. So I wanna I wanna get to that after we we talk about the bulk of the book. Um, you start with a puzzle which you call a puzzle of diminishing grief, um, which turns out to be a special case of the of the main puzzle of accommodation. Um, but maybe we can start with that. You know, you you go through your your response to your mother's death, and then. And then the fact that, uh, you know, her death is a reason for your grief. And that reason doesn't change over time. And it justifies, you know, your emotions as why it's reasonable. But then over time, it also seems somehow reasonable for you to not grieve so much. And in fact, it's a, it's, it can be a clinical, you know, condition for you to, for, for anyone to keep grieving to such an extent as when the grief is fresh. So can you, could you explain a bit, you know, give us a little bit of context from the grief angle about um, the, the puzzle that will dominate the book? Well, I think you described it well. Uh, you know, I started thinking about the main question of the book after my mother died. Uh, she died suddenly and unexpectedly. She was 55. And uh, I felt profound grief, um, and I thought with good reason, and I expected that grief to, to last. And then it didn't, uh, or at least it diminished very significantly, surprisingly quickly. And this was a you know moment in, in life that I found philosophically puzzling. And in a way, my philosophy starts from these puzzling moments uh, in, in life. And um, that's what I kept thinking about. How, how could it be all right for my grief to diminish? And I thought it was fine. I, I didn't think like the right response to her death would be to continuously grieve with the same intensity or with the intensity that, that the significance of her death would seem to warrant. Um, how could it be all right for the grief to diminish? Um, and then I had conversations with friends and first I thought, look, this shows that emotions are not reasons responsive. And then some, some friends were like, no, 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 don't jump to that. And then I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, um, you know, the grief is still a response to the loss. It somehow still makes sense in light of the loss. Um, why do I grieve is, the, is not a question for causes, but for, for reasons or justifying reasons. Um, and it seems like I had a very good justifying reason for grieving. Anyway, so it, it was an overreaction to say that um, grief was not reasons responsive. But then that really brings out the, the problem of how can the diminution of grief be somehow all right? And that's, that's eventually I, I, I wrote this book. And the conclusion is really that it is somehow all right. But there's a way in which we can't fully grasp this. What, what grasping this requires is a kind of detachment from the grief. So the grief itself, I want to say, is a response to the loss and has the loss as its object. So, so the grief is a response to my mother's death. And it's really about my mother. It's not about me. But to understand its diminution and why it would be all right for grief to diminish requires bringing the grief itself into view. And so thinking about myself uh, as the kind of creature that I am, in particular, it requires thinking about grief as having a, a kind of functional role, having some sort of role in, in the life of a creature like me. And so there's this kind of double perspective. On the one hand, the perspective of grief onto the loss onto the death of my mother and the perspective onto me as someone who grieves in this particular way. And I think these two perspectives are kind of deeply opposed and can't be integrated. Hmm. 
Well, let's you you brought in a, a lot of different you know steps in the in the overall book. So let me let me uh, and I'll, I want to return to them. Um, but I think you give a, a clear a clear statement of of the the problem in the in the sense of in relation to grief. Um, but uh, you go on to say it's it's really we call it the the puzzle of accommodation, right? Or of of somehow of resilience. Um, uh, so could you could you say how you how you generalize from the grief case to uh, to, to other emotional cases. And then what is the, what's the limit there? I mean, is, it's, is this, uh, you only discuss grief and anger and then at the very end love. Um, but of course there's a lot more emotions than that. So, so, you know, how does the puzzle, the general form, and then how general exactly is it? Right. Well, once I experienced it with grief, I begin. I began seeing it everywhere. Um, you know, this idea that the emotions are responses to their objects, like anger is a response to injustice. Maybe not always. Sometimes uh, it's just to something frustrating. But um, you know, anger is a response to injustice. But anger itself. Um, is the emotion of a creature that has evolved, that has needs. And so anger itself has a functional role. Um, and so how we are angry and how different people in different social circumstances are angry, that itself is going to depend on the kinds of creatures that we are. So you get this kind of um, double vision, as I call it, with anger as well. And and really, one, I feel like once I had this thought, uh, then I... You could see it everywhere that all emotions, well, except for love, which I think is special, but all emotions have their object and then they also have their, uh, their kind of embodiment. And, um, you know, what, what, we, what we learn in having the emotion through the apprehension of their object and what we learn about the emotion if we consider it as our topic, those things need not be integrated. So, you know, with joy, sometimes we, we feel tremendous joy and then the joy diminishes. And I think that the diminution of joy may be really surprising as well. So it's not just the negative emotions, negatively valenced emotions. Um, and, you know, I'm open to the thought that it is like this with really all mental states, um, because all mental states, well, are... are let's say all intentional mental states so mental states that have intentional objects, they have their objects. And so there's something that we understand about these emotions or these mental states in being in them. And then there, they also have their empirical reality. So I'm open to the thought that it is like this, even with belief, though I haven't explored this much except for a couple footnotes in the conclusion. Um, I find it striking, for example, that we are the kinds of creatures that forget and that itself is, I think, part of uh, the empirical nature of belief. You could imagine rational creatures, rational believers, who don't have a need for forgetting um, because they, they, they just sort of maintain beliefs in a different way than we do. Uh, I also think it's plausible to think of something like this for desire. I don't really talk about this in the book, but um, it makes sense. Adaptive preferences are preferences one has given a certain empirical situation. Uh, adaptive preferences have an empirical reality um, for creatures like us. And I could imagine agents or desirers who don't have a need for adaptive preferences. Anyway, so so I, my thought is once you see it, you can kind of see it everywhere. Okay. So one of the things, I mean, you've talked about the object of uh, an emotion. Um, and we. I guess I was going to, I was thinking about that later on because you don't you don't give a theory of the emotions as such you don't say this is my theory of grief this is my theory of anger um but you do um you do mention that that the phenomenological aspect is sort of your your groundwork or where you're coming from and and you haven't mentioned that which is um so maybe we can you can say a bit about um 
you, you've talked about the object of the emotion, the grief in the in the case of you, you know for your mother, it's you know you, your mother was the object, the intentional object, as you put it, of your of your grief. Um, and there's also this embodied functional role that that grief will play. Um, but you haven't mentioned the phenomenological experience, um, and uh, you know one one might say that well, what what diminishes uh, is is the phenomenological, you know, aspect that, that intense sort of, you know, physical embodied, um, uh, you know, conscious experience. Um, and that may diminish, you know, the way, you know, say pain, like, like actual physical pain might diminish. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean maybe that the grief itself has diminished only the feel of it has diminished. True. Um, so can you can you say a bit about the role of phenomenology in your in your account, and then and then you know someone who might push back by saying that your grief hasn't in fact diminished. Right. So I identify my approach as, in a sense, phenomenological. Insofar as I start with something I, I find puzzling in lived experience, I, I take that to be a kind of phenomenological moment, perhaps more in the classical sense of phenomenology than in the contemporary sense. The contemporary sense of phenomenological, as, as you use the notion, is really the sort of felt character of a mental state, um, like the pain that's felt when one grieves. Um, I, one of my philosophical heroes is Sartre, and you know he writes in the phenomenological tradition. He is, understands phenomenology differently, not as the kind of felt uh, character of emotional experience or mental states, but a, a particular way of approaching the study of the mind. Um, so in that sense, uh, my approach is uh, phenomenological. Um, the, the objection you raise is, is a very good one, and maybe in, in the end, that's what there is to say about the topic. Um, but my thought is, well, if, if grief has kind of a phenomenological component and an intentional component, as you suggest, so the intentional, the intentional component would be um, the, the death of my mother, and the phenomenological component would be some, some kind of pain, you know, the first question I would ask is, why are these one? Why is this grief? Why are these not two? A belief about the loss and something like a stomachache. Um, but, but I do think emotions are, uh, in a way, in a puzzling way, unified. So we, we don't talk about thoughts and pains. We talk about grief. And, and um, so I suppose my, my thought is, Insofar as grief is a unified thing, the diminution of the phenomenological aspect, um, that is to say phenomenological in the sense of its felt character, is a diminution of the emotion itself. Or so it strikes me. Um, I think that at least this strikes me as puzzling. And so I have a whole book trying to sort of speak to the puzzle and, and maybe someone will get off, off the bus before they reached my... Uh, double vision conclusion, but, but this is how I would um, motivate it. Okay, so you, you've mentioned um, the object of the emotions. Um, so your mother, for example, in the case of grief, uh, you know, she was, the, she was the object, the intentional object of that emotion. And you also mentioned how, how uh, these emotions have a functional role as well that's embodied, that that depends on, you know, the, the kinds of natural creatures that we are. W one thing you haven't mentioned is the, is the felt quality of, of, for example, grief. Um, and I was wondering how you kind of integrated that into your, um, your view of the emotions. And I, I, I say view of the emotions, knowing that, you don't you explicitly do not give a, a theory of the emotions, but, you know, Clearly, there's some view of what grief is or what anger is when you're talking about their reasons, responsiveness, and the diminishment of, of these emotions. So, so one question is, could you, could, could you explain how phenomenology, you know, the felt quality kind of gets 
you know, integrated into what these emotions are. Um, but then also, you know, there's a kind of an obvious response to the problem of accommodation, which is merely to say something like, well, it's not the emotion itself that diminishes. It's just the, you know, phenomenological feel, the experience quality, that, that intenseness of the, of the, you know, physical pain that, that of, of grief, for example, um, that diminishes, but it's not as if the grief itself in some way um, diminishes. You, you're still grieve for your mother. You just don't grieve with that particular felt quality to it. So, so can you, can you explain both those, both those aspects? Yes. I start with phenomenology and in a way I identify the project as a project uh, in phenomenology. However, I use the term more in its classical sense than in its contemporary sense. The classical sense is the one we find in philosophers like Sartre, who is my hero, or Husserl, uh, whom my grandmother told me to read ages ago. Um, and I tried and didn't didn't get very far. Um, but uh, so classically, phenomenology is just a particular way of studying consciousness or studying the mind. And you know, my project starts with lived experience, which with this moment in lived experience that I find really puzzling. And so, in that sense, um, I see it as phenomenological. Now, there is this contemporary sense of phenomenology as the the felt quality of a mental state, and the, the suggestion you made that perhaps it's only the felt quality that diminishes, but not grief, um, is a, it's a serious suggestion. The thing that I find um, puzzling is there's a way in which grief is a unity. It's, it's, it's a mental state. And, um, you know, we speak of the emotion of grief. We don't speak of the judgment of grief and as it were, the stomach ache of grief, even though grief has moments where it seems like a judgment and it has moments where it seems more like a pain. Um, I, I find it phenomenologically in the contemporary sense, I find it very much like a fever because it has, it comes and goes, you know, these pangs of grief. But so, so there's a way in which, as it were, the thought and the feeling, they are one. Or the intentional object and the, the phenomenal character in the contemporary sense, they're, they're one. And so my thought is, well, if the phenomenal character, as it were, diminishes, the grief itself diminishes because the phenomenal character is one with the grief. Um, or at least that's how I would motivate it. And then, um, uh, you know, I have a whole book that sort of tries to deal with it, and I expect readers not to agree and so some will will go for a, a suggestion along the lines you've made uh, but I, I think that it itself has problems because of um, the way that you know feeling and thought in the case of emotion are intertwined hmm. okay um like well, I guess I, I could press that but I'd, I'd like to have you more say more about the book um uh, so you, you, after going through a very interesting, you know, discussion of, of, you know, a lot of pushback to the fact that, you know, is there a really problem here at all? And, and insisting, yes, there really, there really is a puzzle. Um, you know, the reasons don't change if the reasons make the emotions, you know, reasonable to have then, you know, and they don't change then what, you know, how to, how does it explain the fact that the emotions themselves seem to diminish in time? Um, what's the, what is the hard line? You go through like a pragmatist response, a hard line response. Um, uh, and I think, um, you end up with a, a sort of a double vision view, which you've mentioned. We can go back to that. Um, can you can you say a bit about the hardline and, and pragmatic or pragmatist responses to the puzzle? Right. So the pragmatist response, let me start with that one, um, is, well, of course grief diminishes because if it didn't, we'd go to pieces. That's a very kind of bold formulation of the pragmatist response. In any case, our needs 
the needs of the griever make it rational for grief to diminish? And my answer to that is, well, it's a bit like my answer to the pragmatist in the ethics of belief. Facts about us are reasons of the wrong kind. So the fact, for example, that it is very difficult for me to believe something, it makes my life go bad that I believe it, is not a reason not to believe it. Because belief isn't about its goodness, belief is about the truth. The only reason of the right kind to believe something is a reason that shows something to be true. And the only reason of the right kind to stop believing something is a reason that shows something to be false. There are complications here having to do with withholding. My book is about the emotions. You know, Maybe they arise as well, but this is something to talk about. Now, my thought is similar in the case of grief. The fact that grief is hard for me is not a reason not to grieve because it doesn't show grief to be somehow incorrect. A reason not to grieve is a reason that shows it to be the case that there's no loss, that, uh, that nothing bad has happened. My mother is not dead after all, or something like that. That's a reason for which grief would diminish. That's a right kind of reason. And so my thought is these pragmatic considerations that have to do with us are reasons of the wrong kind. Um, they don't bear on the right question. And so they're not really reasons at all. And then out of this thought, um, you might sort of draw the decisive le lesson, the, the hardline response, which says, right, now that I've understood reasons of the right kind, I see the only right kind of reason for grief to diminish would be a consideration that shows that there is no loss after all, or that the loss is a lot less significant. And that's not the case. You know, the significance of my mother's death doesn't change that much. I still love her. And so it seems like I have reason to grieve. And it's especially clear in the case of injustice. You know, if an injustice happens and we respond to it with anger, the injustice doesn't change. And so the reason the reason to remain angry, the re right kind of reason to remain angry remains. And so the hardline response is, you know, follow the argument where it leads. Um, diminution of grief and diminution of anger are not reasonable. Now, that is the hardline response because it's in a way very neat and, and very clear. And I think it, it respects the thing that I think needs to be respected, which is this distinction between right kind and wrong kind of reasons. And so I take it to be uh, the hardest response to beat. And how do you respond to it then? There is a way in which this hardline response strikes me as um, untrue to human reality. Um, one way to see this is that it identifies um, the rationality of emotions with the rationality of belief. So if it's rational to believe that a loss has occurred, then it is rational to grieve the loss and not otherwise. And now, you know, that is a possible philosophical position, but once you put it that way, I think it should strike us as less attractive because grief and belief are not the same thing. Um, and then there's this further thought, which is, look, grief is the mental state of a particular empirical creature. Plausibly, grief has some sort of functional role. And on the hardline view, the functional role of grief bears no relation to its rationality whatsoever. Um, so how grief is embodied in creatures like us and how it's socialized for the hardliner, that, that, that just doesn't seem to have any role to play. And so I think the hardliner ends up with uh, an unrealistic conception of grief, a conception of grief that's not a conception for human beings. It would be a little bit like a conception of belief for creatures that never forget. I didn't say that in the book, but that's a way to develop the objection. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's get, I have a, I have a, a follow-up, but um, uh, maybe we should talk first about your, uh, your double vision. Um, the, the idea that there is this double vision in, uh, in these emotions, 
um, that is both sort of inevitable, uh, but also irreconcilable or, you know, they, we can't integrate these two, you know, views or aspects. And at the same time, it's like, this is how, this is part of how you explain why it is nevertheless reasonable for, for our grief or our anger, whatever to diminish, um, even though the objects, you know, the reasons haven't changed at all. Could you, could, could you explain that important aspect of, of your view? Sure. So there's two thoughts. The first thought is this double vision thought. And then the second thought is an appeal to a theory called pragmatic encroachment. Uh, and that second thought explains the reasonableness of the diminution. So first on the double vision, I it strikes me as quite plausible that there is a kind of double vision. So on the one hand, the emotion itself is a way of apprehending the world. It's, it's a way of apprehending its object. On the other hand, there is a empirical perspective onto that emotion itself. I want to say, who, who could deny that? Now, maybe the bit that I think is controversial is that these two perspectives can't be fully integrated. Um, so on the one hand, there is the perspective onto the world. So in the case of grief, there's the consciousness of the death of my mother. And on the other hand, there is the empirical perspective onto that grief. So the, the, um, the thought, I am a kind of creature that is conscious in this way. And I think that the two perspectives can't be integrated, um, emerges out of something like the following thought. Well, grief itself is a form of consciousness. It's consciousness of loss. But the empirical perspective onto grief is consciousness of consciousness. But consciousness of consciousness does not leave the original consciousness unchanged. It's not that I can grieve and then also think about my own grief. In thinking about my own grief, my attention moves from the loss onto myself. There's a way in which there's a bit of a change of topic. Um, you know, in, in one moment, I'm thinking about my mother and her death. In another moment, I'm thinking about the empirical reality of grief, of my grief. I am this kind of person with this kind of history and, and uh, this kind of psychology. And so there's really two thoughts to be had. And in having the second thought about myself, I have shifted, I, I have abandoned the first thought, which is a thought that's not about myself. And so that's kind of the structure of the double vision. Um, and this is actually a bit of phenomenology in the classical sense. It's, it's a reflection on the structure of consciousness. Uh, there is the second bit about pragmatic encroachment, which is that once we see that there is this theoretical perspective onto grief, we can have the thought that this theoretical perspective onto grief also reveals something about the rationality of grief. So once we understand that grief has a functional role, if it does, we can understand something not just about the empirical reality of grief, but also about its rationality. And th this is the bit that the hardliner denies. The hardliner response says, well, that doesn't bear on the rationality. And my thought is, yes, it does. The functional role of grief does bear on its on the rationality of grief and so the idea is that from this theoretical standpoint on the emotions we can learn something about their rationality but because this theoretical standpoint cannot be integrated with the internal standpoint the the look outward onto loss onto injustice there is we can understand theoretically that it's all right for grief to diminish but we can't understand it from within. And so there is a kind of unreconciled moment in our emotional experience, because although we, we understand, well, it's all right uh, for grief to diminish, there aren't reasons that we can point to in light of which this would be all right. All we have is this kind of theoretical story about the empirical reality of the emotion. That's the view. So, so, and why, why can't this, I mean, it's, uh, why, why does this, we might not be able to 
Well, maybe I'm just restating your view. Um, so, yeah, one perspective in an emotion is on the object, you know, out on the world, your, your mother in the case of your mother's draft, death and your, your grief and relationship to her as its object. Um, and then, uh, and then there's this other sort of separate second order or something, uh, perspective on your grief, which, um, which you in particular as a philosopher are taking. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but in any case, that 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 perspective doesn't seem to be, isn't certainly isn't isn't part of the emotion, is it? I mean, it's not it's not like you have to have that perspective in order to have grief, correct? Yes. It, well, it colors the emotion. I mean, there's this really nice example from um there's this nice example from Dick Moran's book, Authority and Estrangement. And Moran is a philosophical hero of mine. Um, and he discusses this example from a Kingsley Amos novel where a man, I'll retell it, perhaps not precisely, but a man goes and cheats on his wife and is walking home and feels tremendous guilt. And then he thinks, well, at least I feel guilt. You know, my, my, my moral compass is still there. And then he thinks gosh, this thought that my moral compass is there is such a, a way to um, try to excuse myself. You know, it shifts the topic. And then he has the thought, wow, I have so much self-knowledge to realize that the thought that the, uh, my moral compass is still there is a way of excusing myself. And so the, the thought is you can, you can always add a further thought about the fact that one is having a mental uh, state. And that further thought will, it will color, it will change the significance of the original thought. You said second order. I, I, I prefer not to use that terminology because it suggests that there is a reality that's there and then a view onto that reality. But the point in the case of consciousness or mental states is precisely that these are not entirely independent. The, as it were, second order state um, colors. Uh, the first order state, as it were. And so th these orders are not entirely separate. And that has to do the with the fact that um, there are our own mental states. So I can take uh, a perspective onto someone else's mental state where my perspective onto someone else's mental state doesn't automatically, if I don't talk to them, color or change their mental state. So, um, you know, going back to, to Moran's example, uh, we can take a perspective onto the man's guilt and say, well, look, at least, at least his moral compass is still there. But he himself can't take that perspective because it's, it's his consciousness. Um, and as it is in that example, so I think it is in grief. Um, there's grief, and then there's the thought, how long will the grief last? And I don't think that that's just a philosopher's thought. I think that a griever will have that thought as well, or maybe... The point I should say is I think we're all philosophers um, and we are trying to, insofar as we're trying to understand what's going on and insofar as we're trying to understand our grief or, you know, our relations to others. And I, I do think it's very important that the, the views we have of our own mental states make a difference to those mental states. Are, are they part, so is this, you know, sort of, I won't say second order, but sort of self-assessment um, part of the functional role then? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, I'm not sure what to say. Uh, I think this talk about functional roles may even be insensitive to this point about the um, dependence of, uh, you know, the, as it were, the first order state onto the reflection on it. You know, some philosophers attribute huge significance to this and say, well, you know, we're reflective creatures, and that means because we have reflective distance, um, you know, we're not determined by our first-order states. Um, and some people say, no, no, look, there's these sort of separate uh, first-order states and second-order states. In a way, I, I mean to contribute to, to this discussion, but sort of indirectly through the phenomenology of the diminution of grief. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm trying to figure out how the double, um, how the, 
how exactly you reckon, you know, maybe, maybe how exactly you recognize, uh, reconcile the, the reasonableness, what, what makes it reasonable for our grief or anger, whatever to diminish, um, you know, even when the object itself hasn't changed. I, so could you maybe to, could you, you again, I think, and maybe this is just my kind of confusion. The fact that I'm self assessing my grief, um, and the fact that I, in some way that's, that affects the grief, um, without being part of it, I suppose, um, although you, you just said that they're not separate, you know, the, so that was the second order talk that you, that you do avoid in the book. Um, uh, so, um, the fact that I'm a, let me, let me try to put the, the puzzlement this way. The fact that I am the, that, and then I am aware that I am the kind of creature who, assesses my emotions um, and that this can affect uh, the emotion themselves. Um, how does that make the diminishment reasonable? I don't think that's what makes the diminishment reasonable. Okay. But in a way, I'm, I'm very glad about your question because I think there is something... I think there is something inexplicable in in the very place where you are looking for the explanation. There is really nothing that I can point to to explain the reasonableness of the diminution of grief, except to say, well, that's just what we're like, and it's fine that we're like that. Um, it's not like my mother's death means so much less to me now that I hardly ever need to think of her. Um, it's not like the injustice that happened, you know, last week or last year somehow doesn't matter anymore so that it, that it warrants no emotional response for me. It's not like that the object has changed relevantly. Um, so, and, you know, the wrong kind of reasons are the wrong kind of reasons. It's not like the fact that I have needs makes a difference to whether anger is, uh, correct. So there is nothing there. There is something really inexplicable. And yet, I understand this is the kind of creature I am. Um, there are limits on my attention. And, it, you know, if you're going to have a, a realistic, um, rational psychology, these limits of attention or these functional roles, they have to bear on the rationality of emotion. And so there is something kind of dissatisfying, but I, I think that's life. I think that's the life of someone who's both a subject and an object, a subject that is someone who's facing outward onto loss and injustice and an object, someone who's, who's embodied and, and historically conditioned and socially situated in a certain way. So the, the, the double vision is really a, an articulation of this idea of that we are at once subjects and objects, uh, an idea I find in Sartre and in Moran, and that's sort of a philosophical motif that I'm really attracted to. Okay. Okay. That, that was, that was helpful, I think, because, um, I think maybe behind that, which is the question about the, the reason, you know, the reasonableness, I mean, the, the accommodation puzzle was, you know, uh, you know, it diminishes, but the reason, you know, your mother's death has, it may be, um, that doesn't change. Right. Um, um, so there seems to be a, yet it's reasonable for, for our grief to diminish because we are the embodied creatures that we are, even if the reason for the, for the emotion has not diminished or changed in any way at all. So, so I guess the, the question that I'm, that I that is kind of bubbling up is is uh, the the normative aspect of what's reasonable to have in terms of an emotion like grief and what's not and you know and therefore the reasonableness of the diminishment over time. Um, 
uh, that seems to be a purely naturalistic normativity. Is that correct? Well, I would not say it's a purely naturalistic normativity. I would prefer <laughs> not. I, I would prefer not to be purely naturalistic about anything. Um, <laughs> I'm a good existentialist. Um, I just think you can't understand uh, uh, something like human emotions without looking at how they're actually experienced and what the, you know, what role they play in human life. But the, the role they play isn't what the emotions are about. The emotions are about, you know, things that happen in life. And, and so there is going to be this kind of dissonance between the view of the emotions themselves, which are about things, and and a view about the role they play. Now, this there, there can be a naturalistic element. Um, I do think, for example, in the case of grief, that there's a way in which we're we're really wired for loss. So this is uh, this is an idea that comes out of the new science of grief. Uh, I don't know how new it is, but um, you know George Bonanno is a is a proponent, and he says we're wired for loss. And and if you think about it, that that kind of makes sense. That that um, we'd be the kinds of creatures that can deal with loss, um, that can survive loss. Um, uh, so, so there is a naturalistic component, but it doesn't have to be uh, entirely naturalistic. I think a lot of how we grieve and how we're angry is socially um, situated and conditioned. Um, and I am very taken by the thought that emotions themselves have a, have a history and the, that there's a kind of historical aspect, um, maybe especially in a kind of psychoanalytic sense, um, going back to early experiences, um, that that's also very important. So, so I, I don't think that this is sort of necessarily naturalistic. Did that make sense? It, it does. I'm not sure I, I agree because I would, I would assume that our social embeddedness is, is part of our, you know, general widely considered embodiment. Yeah, well, I agree with that, um, but I do <laughs> like this thought that our sociality uh, transforms our nature. Ah, okay. So maybe I... you know, it, maybe it'll depend on on what nature means and what naturalistic means. Um, but I am taken by these thoughts you get lots of places, but you know, in in you know, for example, in Hegel, that uh, our nature is transformed by our sociality. And then, and then there's a question, what's the relation between nature and sociality? And that's a very timely question in, in many, many contexts. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the main theories of our whole cognitive ability is, you know, based on our so- social needs. But I mean that gets into gets that gets us a bit far from where where we want to go. Um, I want to I want to take us to the 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 bit on endless love at the end because um, could you could you explain that a bit? I mean that was that was quite a for me and when I was reading the book it was sort of you know talking about the temporality of emotions, their diminishment over time. And it's, as you clarified here, it's not just the negative emotions that you discuss, uh, but it's also, you know, positive things like joy and so forth. Um, but then you have this bit at the end about endless love and that, that kind of struck me as, whoa, endless. I mean, you know, we've got pretty high divorce rates and lots of, you know, people having partners and then breaking up and, you know, uh, if anything seems less than endless, it would seem to be love. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so can, can you explain the the that the role of you know what what you're talking about when you're talking about endless love and and what role that has in relation to the rest of the book? Sure. Well, sometimes now, from a kind of historical perspective onto the book, it strikes me that I wrote two books: one on grief and one on love, <laughs> and. Uh, they're really deeply inconsistent. And, you know, <laughs> I, I like existentialists, so I have a very high tolerance for inconsistency. Um, 
joking aside, I, I do make some efforts to uh, integrate the argument about grief with the argument about love. Though I do remain quite unsure about that. But the thought about love starts something like this. You know, it's not... Let me start with my kids, which in a way are a great example. It's not an empirical question for me how long I will love my children. You know, I don't, I don't need to... I don't feel any pressure whatsoever to sort of look at, at empirical data about it. And, and I want to say it's not an empirical question for me how long I will love my spouse, who also is a philosopher, by the way, um, and, and a great one. So she, you know, she is someone I love. And when we got married, I, I said, I will love you all the days of my life. And I meant it. And it wasn't hyperbole. It wasn't some sort of crazy, irrational prediction that's not based on any evidence. Um, but, but I also didn't do sort of statistical research and find, whoa, I'm in the demographic where, in fact, I will love my spouse all the days of my life. It, it's, when, when I said this, it wasn't like that. It wasn't an empirical prediction. I hope you feel the attraction of that thought, even if you think it's mistaken. If, In a way, if one doesn't feel the attraction of that thought, then, then it's very hard to get this puzzlement off the ground. But if you think we can say things like, I will love you all the days of my life without doing empirical research about the nature of love, then you have the puzzle. How can we say this without being some sort of crazy hyperbole or some thorough irrationality? And the last part of the book is an attempt to formulate an answer to this question, why it would be um, possible to say something like that without irrationality and without empirical research. So the thought is not that all love is endless. Um, it is not. But the thought is we can, without irrationality and without social scientific empirical investigation, Think of our own love as endless. So my thought is, we can understand something about the temporality of love uh, without social scientific empirical research, but simply through understanding the object of our love. That's the view. Mm. And um, so is the difference between, say, grief and love the fact that uh, in the in the in the case of grief, um, our expectation is that it will diminish, and that's good. And in the case of love, our expectation is that it won't diminish, and that is actually not true. <laughs> well. In the case of grief, there is this double vision. I think in the case of love, there isn't. I, I am, you know, anxious in giving this argument, um, meaning I, yeah, I'm a, you know, I feel anguish as a good existentialist. Um, the, the thought is, when we say something like, I will love you all the days of my life, we're not making an empirical prediction. Uh, we're also not just speaking metaphorically or um, irrationally, uh, but there is a way in which we we are we have in view the beloved, and what we learn empirically about love later or before is not inconsistent with that thought. I will love you all the days of my life. In the case of grief, you know, initially I thought I would grieve for my mother for the rest of my life. So as it were from within, I think grief looks much like love. But what we learn empirically from a theoretical standpoint is that grief is not like that. So there is a way in which in the case of grief, the empirical perspective corrects the internal perspective. And this correction doesn't show up in the internal perspective, and that's why we're stuck with double vision. But in the case of love, at least that's the argument, I think the external perspective does not correct the internal perspective. Um, and that's why um, when we say something like, 
I will love you all the days of my life. We speak from within love. We express our love. Um, but there isn't a, a sort of separate standpoint onto this that reveals to us, actually, it's not like that. That's the thought. That's, huh. I, um, I wonder how, how universal that could possibly be, either historically or socially. Um, I mean... I make no claims to universality. So there's <laughs> another way in which my project is meant to be a kind of an invitation to philosophy. I describe a course of experience uh, and a course of thought, um, and I, I often present it first personally, which I think is characteristic of phenomenology in, in the classical sense. And then, um, you know, I invite readers to see if they find that this strikes them as true. But I, I make no claim to this being um, universal or sort of true across uh, different social settings. Um, I think this is, I mean, going back to phenomenology, this strikes me as, as, as quite important uh, methodologically. Um, there is a way of doing philosophy and using the first person, but doing it in a way that uh, is not about oneself. And I think the standard, the, the best example is really Descartes' meditations, which are written in the first person. And it would not, but, but they're not about any particular individual. They're not like an autobiography. You know, you read the meditations and when the meditator says, I, you see yourself in that I. Um, and I want to say, well, that, that's how I would like to present my work. I say I, and I describe my grief and I, I describe my love, and I hope that, that readers will find themselves in this I. I hope they won't read it as sort of autobiography, like, you know, whoa, what a weird guy. But they, they will see that these thoughts are available to, to them. Um, but readers might not agree. Um, and readers from different cultures or different times uh, might be less able to sort of adopt that I. Um, that's fine. I think there is space for philosophy of the kind that I'm offering that is neither kind of, um, you know, an, an account of the a priori structures of consciousness. So it's not like necessity and universality, but it's also not sort of in social scientific empirical research. It's the, the first personal description of a course of experience that others will hopefully find themselves in. Fair enough. I that 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 made a lot of sense. Um, so I think we're we're out of time uh, or, or getting close to it. So I'd like to end with a question about what you're working on now. What's what's the next step for you with this with this book in the past? What's in your future? Thanks. Um, so there are two things I'm working on. One is uh, a book on Sartre. I've mentioned Sartre a couple of times though uh, people who, who know me will notice that I mention Sartre a lot less than I would in a typical conversation. So the, the, you know, the new project is really a book on Sartre. It's an attempt to say clearly and concisely, as much as this is possible, uh, you know, maybe in 200 pages, what Sartre said obscurely and bombastically on in 850 pages of being in nothingness. So it'll be a short book that says what the view is or what the view could be if it were sort of analytically defensible. That's one project. The other project is a continuation of work I have done with my dear friend, Steve White, who passed away. So there's an element of grief there. Um, things are complicated, life is complicated, you know, but um, it's, it's on the interpersonal. And this is one dissatisfaction I have with the emotions book that the interpersonal is not sufficiently thematized. There's more to say. And so um, the second project is on um, the extent in which thought itself is interpersonal um, in, in topics like trusting someone or believing someone or also reasoning with someone. Um, so that is the, the main other research project. Great. Well, that sounds, they both sound like worthwhile you know, continuations or follow-ups or just, you know, um, 
uh, projects that that I look forward to 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 coming across in the future. Um, but we are we are currently out of time, so I just want to thank you again for for taking the time to talk with um, us at New Books and Philosophy and and you know explain your book to some degree to the rest of the philosophical and and other community. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Beroslav Marusic, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. We've been talking about his new book, On the Temporality of Emotions, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.